Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, April 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the latest from the governor and his coronavirus response team. Then the role of telemedicine in fighting the pandemic. Plus... The time to send a signal to people that you're watching and that they ought to know you're watching is right at the very beginning, too. Mississippi is expecting millions of dollars in federal aid. A word with the state auditor about monitoring that money. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves is applauding the Department of Health and the University of Mississippi Medical Center for their efforts in ramping up testing across the state. At a press conference yesterday, Reeves shared testing data and compared it to the nations from which the new aggressive Mississippi model is based. Part of being offensive uh, with respect to this includes uh, making sure that we are doing tests, and which would have then allow for our State Department of Health uh, to, to implement their identify and then isolate strategy. You've also heard us talk about uh, our, uh, the, the, the model that we're utilizing from a proactive approach uh, includes uh, looking at uh, other countries uh, and what they've been able to do. And, and as you know, in most other countries, um, and, and really it, it was, became a standard at one time that some of the South Korean model in terms of the fact that they had tested somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,200 of their residents per 1 million. Um, what I will tell you today uh, is thanks to Dr. Dobbs and his team, they've been able to, uh, uh, and, and in large part thanks to the Congress uh, acting the latter part of last week and requiring all labs to report to the CDC. Uh, we do have uh, additional data today. Um, what we found is that uh, in my um, estimation a couple of days ago, I really underestimated how many tests that the private lab uh, for Mississippians uh, we are now uh, projecting that we have uh, seen approximately 16,662 total tests uh, in Mississippi. 
And with our population uh, being approximately uh, 3 million people, uh, you can see that, that from a testing standpoint, uh, we are at that approximately uh, 5,300 uh, per 1 million residents. The most recent report from the State Department of Health indicates that state labs have accounted for 5,257 tests with 504 positive results. Data from private labs is not reported on the department's coronavirus website. Reeves also addressed the skyrocketing unemployment numbers. He assures that while the long wait may be due to a large rise in applications, Mississippians will receive unemployment benefits based on the day of termination. In our state... Uh, the, two weeks ago, a typical week in Mississippi, we had slightly less or approximately 1,000 uh, unemployment claims. Last week, we had approximately 5,500 unemployment claims, five and a half times what we had uh, the week before. This week, we had approximately 30,000 unemployment claims. That's 30 times the number of claims from two weeks ago. Make no mistake, this is not only a public health disaster, this is also an economic disaster in Mississippi and in this nation. What, what I want you to know is that we understand that with the workload at the Department of Employment Security uh, being 30x compared to what it was two weeks ago, I just ask you to be patient, put yourself in those employees' shoes, but remember, no matter what we, no matter when we are able to process your claim, I want you to know you are entitled to benefits based upon the first day that you were laid off and that you will, uh, you will be paid uh, based upon your, the date at which you were laid off, not the date at which you actually uh, get your claim approved. Uh, and filed by our state. We are putting in more measures uh, to hire additional people to deal with the, uh, the significant uptick in claims, and we're going to make sure that you are able to get through. Uh, we're going to make sure that you get what you are entitled to because it's not your fault that COVID-19 has led to this economic challenge, and we're going to stand with you uh, as a state. The nationwide shortage of personal protection equipment is still a major concern. MEMA Director Greg Michelle says the state can expect PPE shipments to arrive through the weekend. Please report that we are starting to, uh, to receive uh, the PPE shipments, uh, and we hope to steady receive these throughout the rest of the, uh, the weekend and going into next week. Uh, so just to give you a, a report and update on what we've got in the last 24 hours, 18,000 surgical masks. Uh, those are masks that we were able to get uh, from uh, 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 Mississippi companies there. 25,000 N95 masks, 10,000 Tyvek suits uh, for our health care workers, uh, 2,500 uh, bottles of hand sanitizer. These would be uh, bottles that we would be able to place with our first emergency responders, and then 15,000 uh, test tubes to assist with the lab supplies uh, to assist Dr. Dobbs and his team in testing. So we are starting to get supplies in. And uh, we're anticipating those shipments to come in regularly from this point forward now. Greg Michelle is the executive director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Next, an effort is being launched around the state to make much-needed masks at home. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
I'm Karen Brown. A Mississippi nonprofit is recruiting volunteers to make face masks to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. As MPB's Desiree Fraser reports, they aren't alone. A Mississippi business has also revamped its factory to help meet the demand for protective face masks. Mississippi, like the rest of the nation, faces a dire shortage of face masks to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. The shortage is especially acute in prisons and jails, according to Paloma Wu with the Mississippi Center for Justice. In Mississippi, there are 19,000 people housed within the State Department of Corrections, where staying six feet apart isn't an option. The Centers for Disease Control has been very clear that the need for cloth masks is, you know, the need for a barrier. Um, largely, it's protect both staff, but also um, the people who are residents in these communities. Neighboring Louisiana is experiencing a surge in coronavirus cases in its prisons. Two inmates at a federal facility have died, and 30 other inmates and staff are infected. The entire federal prison system is now under a shutdown order. Also, 60 people at another Louisiana facility are infected with the virus. Infection is so severe, they've reportedly stopped testing inmates. Wu says similar outbreaks in this state would put all Mississippians at risk. One outbreak, bad outbreak in a facility, can knock over our entire critical care system. And then, you know, when your mom needs it or you need it, you know, you won't be able to access it. Wu says their attempts to have inmates who are at high risk of contracting the virus released hasn't gained steam. She says face masks are the next best option. Wu calls the month-old project Mississippi Mass Drive, and she says they are getting requests for several thousand masks at one time. You know, that percentage of everybody that's going to get sick, that's going to need critical care beds, we need to keep those beds as open as possible and prevent there being these hot spots. And all of these confined facilities are potentially hot spots. I'm 80 years old, so I'm one of those at the high risk, and I have other underlying conditions, so I'm just staying in. So this is great to keep me busy. Volunteer Norma Baker of Clinton has sewed more than 300 face masks for the drive using mounds of fabric she's accumulated from making quilts. She says she's mailed a relative who manages an assistant living center in Arizona 100 because they didn't have any. She's also provided them to local institutions and nursing homes in the area. It reminds me of the war efforts years ago. And I just think that we are in a war right now. And this is one way that who those of us who are able can help. Businessman Josh West of Blue Delta Jeans in Tupelo saw a need. He decided to retool his luxury jean factory to make face masks. To just change your whole factory over and make another product. If you would have told me that uh, in February, uh, I would have I told you you were you're crazy. But um, we're in unprecedented times, so we're taking unprecedented steps. And it's not comfortable, um, but it's necessary. Wes says they initially put out a social media post saying they think they could make them, but they needed advice from medical experts. He says the response was overwhelming. Wes says Mississippi State University's Energy Institute helped them test the face masks. He calls them face guards and says they're not for contaminated environments. People working in the checkout lines, first responders, people that, that aren't going into the ORs or go, aren't going into a contaminated environment, it's a good face guard as a, it to use as a shield. Wes adds orders for his luxury jeans have declined. By making the face masks, he says they're helping Mississippi and keeping employees on the payroll at the same time. The factory can make 10,000 face guards in a week. 
West says he gets calls from all over the country, but his focus is on filling orders for the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. MEMA distributes them to county emergency offices, who then give them out to first responders and health care providers. It's temporary for us. We're not we're not trying to, to be in the in the mass business. We want to get back to making jeans as soon as possible. But this is allowing our people to stay busy and, and helping our um, our state with the with the need. Mississippians who want to help can go to the Mississippi Center for Justice website to volunteer. There's a video that explains how to make face masks there. Facilities in need of masks can use the website to place orders. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. Coming up, the role of telemedicine in fighting the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Due to, due to the communicable nature of the novel coronavirus, healthcare professionals have resorted to increased use of telemedicine to triage patients and limit potential transmission from hospitals and clinic waiting rooms. Dr. Alan Jones is the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He explains the role of telemedicine in combating the COVID-19 pandemic. Telemedicine or telehealth allows a clinician to have an interaction with a patient that allows for some types of medical problems or questions to be dealt with remotely, uh, just through questions and uh, asking the patient uh, certain historical things. Um, So it does add value to our medical care system. It doesn't supplant uh, face-to-face interactions when appropriate but it does allow the clinician to offer some basic degree of medical care in a lot of different situations. How is telemedicine being used in this COVID-19 outbreak? So the value that we've seen in the COVID-19 outbreak that really has been beneficial to both the healthcare systems as well as the patients is as we have had to change our daily practice of how we decide which patients need to be seen urgently or emergently, some of the more elective type visits have been able to be accomplished through telemedicine. So patients have still been able to get some of the medical care that they need from both primary care doctors and specialists remotely, which is safer for the patient um, because they're not necessarily coming to a doctor's office or a hospital and being exposed per se potentially exposed to COVID-19, but also to the healthcare system because they're able to keep their facilities decanted so that if they need to have those facilities available for patients with coronavirus or um, hospitalized for it, then they have more space available. You mentioned before clinicians on the phone with a person. Is that um, is that the case throughout? And what is the level, the medical level for a clinician? 
Right. So there are various levels, and it depends on what the patient actually needs. So, you know, there are telemedicine processes that we have and others have where it's a simple nursing uh, visit with the patient, and that is typically referred to as chronic care management or remote patient monitoring so that a nurse has access to certain types of data through telehealth. And is that the case with COVID-19 that someone is likely to be talking to a clinician? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, Really the value outside of being able to maintain some of our more elective outpatient visits that we've seen with COVID-19 is we've been able to keep some of the patients that may be at a higher risk for uh, having a bad outcome associated with COVID-19 at home and monitor them through telehealth to know how their symptoms are developing. Um, We do have remote sensors so we can monitor their oxygen levels. So that's been one benefit. We also have been able to remotely screen and triage patients. So talking to the patient, determining their risk uh, for potentially having the virus, and then for those higher-risk patients, referring them for testing to one of these drive-through testing sites that you've seen that have popped up around. Um, those have been the, the major benefits on an outpatient basis. And then on an inpatient basis, we've been able to utilize telehealth in hospital rooms so that we limit the amount of time that a nurse or a doctor has to go in and out of the room, and each time they enter and exit the room, they go through a new set of protective equipment. And so we've been able to minimize or at least uh, lessen the amount of protective equipment, which we all know and have heard is in short supply. We've been able to minimize that protective equipment use by having a camera in the room and being able to interact with the patient uh, on a more frequent basis rather than ha- having to actually enter the room. And finally, after this pandemic is over, what role can telemedicine play in the state in the future? Well, I think that now we see a more widespread use of tele- telemedicine uh, for these types of outpatient visits and a lot of the things that we can do remotely. I would hope that we would continue to see that activity grow we would see the value as as a society, and that allows us to free up the actual physical resources uh, in a way that we can best utilize them for the patients that actually need to be seen in person at a medical facility. And for those things that don't need to be, we can do them in a more cost-effective way and a more patient-centered way in their home or at their leisure. Dr. Alan Jones is the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you very much for being with us. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. A one-day collection for COVID-19 testing specimens is continuing this weekend. Tomorrow, a testing site will be available at the Pearl River County Health Department from 9 to 4. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the C Spire UMMC smartphone app. Coming up, Mississippi is expecting millions of dollars in federal aid. A word with the state auditor about monitoring that money. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The CARES Act, passed by Congress last month, could pump millions of dollars into Mississippi's businesses and agencies. But for a state on the heels of the largest embezzlement scheme in its history, fraud is a heightened concern. State Auditor Shad White joins our Michael Guidry to discuss the proactive measures his office is taking as financial relief comes to Mississippi. We're assuming that it will be in the tens of millions of dollars. And, and, you know, some of that money is going to go straight from the federal government to individuals. And some of it will go straight from the federal government to small businesses, for example. So some of that sort of flow of funds is not going to fall into the typical wheelhouse of the state auditor. But you also have to remember that local governments, for example, are employers. And and there may be a substantial amount of funds that flow through some state agencies like the Department of Employment Security. And so for those funds, that's That's something that the state auditor in every single state is going to have to worry about and think about. And we know from our experience with Katrina and with the stimulus in 2008-2009 that when you turn that spigot on, when a lot of money flows into a state, the potential for fraud also escalates simultaneously. And so the time to get ahead of this is, is on the front end, the time to start planning what sorts of audits you want to do, what sorts of monitoring you want to do is on the front end, and frankly, the time to send the signal to people that you're watching and that they ought to know you're watching is right at the very beginning, too. Are there funds that are going to be designated to state agencies that for specific items or services that your your office will be specifically monitoring? You know, I think that the, the more likely way it will work is there may be funds that flow through a state agency. Again, an example I would use is the Department of Employment Security, for instance, and, and while that money is flowing, we might not necessarily audit the financial statements, but what we might do instead is go and look at things like the internal controls. So while the money is flowing, you can look and see if there are processes in place inside an office to make sure that the office is doing everything that it can do to prevent fraud. Part of the purpose of, of this week for me is to get on the phone with both auditors in my office and top government auditors who are working in the private sector, get everybody together, get a group of people who have read the bill and understand as much as they can about what's going on, and sit on the phone and talk about ideas for where this money may end up going and what sort of audit procedures we could put into place now to make sure that goes to the right place. This is a unprecedented kind of time, and it's a, it's a never-changing landscape due to the pandemic. But that being said, needs are changing quickly. With that, does there come a leeway with some of this spending? Are some of the restrictions loosened up um, because of the the ever-changing and dynamic needs that this pandemic presents? You know, I think that that is something that the federal government is going to take into account when you're when you're facing an emergency and you need to push out money quickly to individuals and to small businesses. You can write regulations that are more relaxed than the ones you would write during a normal time. But once those regulations are written and once you once you've identified the standard, even if it's a more relaxed standard, somebody has to go and make sure that that standard is being met. 
And so for, for us, the state auditor's office doesn't really set the standard. What we do is enforce the standard. How much does the context of what your office has already uncovered in regards to fraud, how much is that context informing what you're doing before this money comes in and the proactive measures your office is taking? It's a great question, and, and you have identified the reason why we're talking about monitoring and auditing before money is spent. We, unfortunately, as you have noted, have seen millions of dollars being misspent or stolen in Mississippi in various state agencies and local governments. And I can tell you, as a certified fraud examiner, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners does research on this, and they will say that the most effective way of preventing fraud is to increase the perception of detection, increase the perception of detection. In other words, you make sure people understand that there's somebody out there watching. So in order to prevent the kinds of fraud that we have seen so far in my tenure as state auditor, we are making sure that people understand that we're out there watching, that you don't just have to fool the folks who work in an office with you. You have to fool another group of people out there. It's the folks in the state auditor's office who are watching this money. And, and ideally, by putting out this sort of a message, you can make folks think twice about stealing that money before it ever happens. State Auditor Shad White, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you later. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.